Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. I really, really appreciate your diligence and the fact that you are taking it seriously. And we learn from you. We learn from you, uh, both in your uh, profound insights as well as your attitude and conduct. Well, brethren, last September, there was an announcement, and I'll just go ahead and read the announcement to you. September of 2014 said this, mark your calendar for the Oyster Pork Supper at the Carversville Christian Church on October 18. Yes, it's that time of year again. Football, leaves starting to change color, preparing for Halloween, and of course, the annual Oyster Pork Supper at Carversville Christian Church, now in its 143rd year. The great thing about the supper is that it features a uniquely Bucks County take on surf and turf, with the succulent roast pork and golden fried oysters. Add on stewed tomatoes, creamed corn, mashed potatoes, cold slaw, applesauce, and dessert, and you've got a country good meal for the family, just a couple of miles from the center of New Hope. Price for the supper is $19 for adults, $8 for children 5 to 8 years old, and children under age 5 eat free. Takeouts are available for $20. It all takes place on Saturday, October 18, from 3 to 8 p.m., or until sold out at the Carversville Christian Church, and that's in Carversville. So, brethren, here is a Christian church that is celebrating the consumption of pork and oyster, what the Bible would classify as unclean meat. So, I asked... Mr. Google, why do Christians eat unclean meat? And this is what he told me. Says, this is basically Christians and Christian pastors answering the question, why Christians eat unclean meat when the Bible says otherwise. Prohibition for unclean meat fell under the law. Christians are not under the law or not bound by the law. Another says, we eat pork shrimp, etc., because as the church, God has now cleansed those foods. And he cites Acts 10, verses 9 to 16, which we will look at. Another one says, the Bible is the Jewish holy scripture. These were written for the Jews. This command was given because it was very hot in Israel, and in those days they had no fridges. Therefore, God gave this command to the Jews. In those days, there were no Christians, as Christ had not yet come in the flesh. So that's basically the gist of why Christians can eat unclean meat. We're not bound by the law. God has cleansed those foods. And back in the day, they didn't have fridges. So God just said, don't eat those meats because it's hot and uh, They don't have fridges. Well, let's look at some of the scriptural support 
for the consumption of unclean meat. Let's look at some scriptural support. Let's go to Acts 10, the scripture that was quoted. Acts 10, verses 9 to 16. We'll go to 9 to 15. And this, of course, is the vision that Peter had of the unclean animals. Acts 10, verse 9. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew near unto the city, Peter went up unto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry, and he would have eaten. But while he was preparing the food, while he made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth. Wherein, so in this great sheet, were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So this voice is telling him to kill these unclean animals and eat them. And Peter said, this is the voice of the Lord. Peter's now responding. And he says, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, that do not call common. So this is where that argument is that God has cleansed these meats. So they're now good for Christian consumption. Let's go to Romans 14. Romans 14 for further scriptural support for the consumption of unclean meats. Romans 14, beginning in verse 1, says, Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not, and let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. For meat, isn't it beautiful to have the sound of children? That should be like music to our ears. So wonderful. Now, in verse... Three, let not him that eats despise him that eats not, and let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Uh, sorry, I dropped, I, I dropped down to verse 20, I should have told you. Uh, I went to verse 3, and then I dropped to verse 20. I'm at tw- 21. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. Have you faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. And he that doubts is damned if he eats, because he eats not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So clearly, I would say from this passage, it looks like whether you eat meat, unclean food, unclean meat, sorry, unclean meat, or clean meat, that's up to you. But let's not make an an issue out of it. Colossians 2, for more scriptural support. Colossians 2, 
And verse 16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Then let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. So here we see, don't let anybody judge you in the meat that you eat. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 25. Uh, Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 10. Whatsoever is sold in the meat markets, the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. So just eat anything that's sold there. Don't ask questions about it. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go, whatever set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, Eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Verse 29. Conscience, I say, not your own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? Verse 30. For if I, by grace, be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? So again, we get the sense here that we should not make eating meats an issue. Um, two more passages, uh, three more passages, that again show the support of eating unclean meat. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. And in verse 10, Matthew 15, he says, And he called the multitude, this is Jesus Christ speaking, he called the multitude, And he said to them, hear and understand. It's not that which goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth is what defiles the man. So again, when we put these scriptures together, it looks like you can consume anything, and that's not going to defile you. What's going to defile you is what comes, if you lie, if you blaspheme, if that comes out of your mouth, that's what defiles you. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. Okay, the final passage then for support for the eating of unclean meat is in Genesis 9. Genesis 9. I shouldn't say the final. Maybe there are others. These are the ones that I found. Genesis 9. And beginning in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. So this is after the flood. They've come through the flood and they're now back on land. And he blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moves upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. And verse 3 is what I wanted to focus on. Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. So brethren, I think these passages, uh, beginning in Acts, we looked at Romans, we looked at Colossians, we looked at 1 Corinthians, we looked at Matthew, and now Genesis. I would say there's an overwhelming case for the consumption of unclean meat. Under the Christian banner. That now that we're in the new covenant, uh, basically, there's no prohibition on what we eat.
that the Jews obviously had to be careful because it was very hot back then and they didn't have refrigerators, so God told them, you cannot eat meat for that reason. But for us, under the new covenant, it's wide open. Okay? We are subject to the word of God. We can't make up our own religion. We can't be stubborn and say, because we've, already, we've always believed this, we're just going to hold on to it just for tradition's sake. And if somebody comes in and, and shows us from the word of God that our beliefs are incorrect, if we are true Christians, brethren, then we will go to the word of God, we will search it, and we will allow ourselves to be corrected by the word of God. No one is above the word of God. We are not above the word of God. So we see here an overwhelming case for the consumption of unclean meat. What I want to do in the sermon, brethren, is show that the scriptures do not support the consumption of unclean meat. If they do, then we should eat unclean meat. But they do not. And I want to go through this systematically. And and again, if I've misunderstood the scriptures, we're open to discussion. No one is above the word of God. So we have to understand what the scriptures say. And we need an answer to these scriptures that clearly seem to be indicating it's okay to eat unclean meat. The fundamental premise for the consumption of unclean meat is that the law prohibits the consumption of unclean meat and that the law was done away with the death of Christ. I would say, if you look at the arguments, that is the fundamental premise of the argument. So, let's address that first, and then let's address these scriptures. Okay? Let's go to Romans 6. And what I'd like to lay out as context for this discussion is this, that God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. God desires a relationship with man. God cannot have a relationship with unholy man. Man must be made holy to have a relationship with God. I hope that's fair. Everybody would accept that. Holiness is defined by God. That's why God gives us laws to separate us from what is profane so that we can conduct ourselves in a holy manner and have a relationship with him. In Romans 6 and verse 12, notice this. It says to Christians, Romans 6 and verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So there's no free-for-all here. You can't be a Christian and be knee-deep in sin, running up and down, doing whatever you like, letting it rain in your mortal body. No. No such thing. Christians are to be holy, and we are not to let sin reign in our body, that we should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither, verse 13, yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. There's a difference between holiness and unholiness. Don't yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead 
and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not, you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Since we're not under the law, we're under grace. The conclusion is, well, let's sin. Since we're not under the law, we're under grace, let's go ahead and sin. Is that the conclusion? God forbid. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace? May God never let that be the case. God forbid that that should be the case. Don't you know that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. So there is a, a form of doctrine that requires obedience, and these brethren have obeyed it from the heart. They're not just doing as they please. Verse 18, being then made from sin, you have become the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. God is holy. We must be holy. We cannot be holy if we're engaged in sin. We must take our members and yield them to righteousness. Yield them to obedience from the heart so that, as it says here, even so, verse 19, the last part, yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. There's a process. We are becoming holy through this process. For when you were servants of sin, verse 20, you were free from righteousness. What fruit did you have in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just go over to chapter 7 and look at verse 7. That shows now, you know, what is sin? What is this sin? that the apostle is speaking of, that we must free ourselves from. And how do we know what is sin? Romans 7 and verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. The law is not sin. No. I had not known sin, but by the law. In other words, anything outside of the law, that is sin. When you break the law, that is sin. Being conformed to the law, Yields to righteousness, yields to holiness. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, you shall not covet. And then look at First John 3. Which is now uh, the Apostle John, con confirming what the Apostle Paul wrote here. First John 3 and verse 4. Who... Soever, no exceptions, anybody who commits sin transgresses also the law. So when you commit sin, what you're actually doing is transgressing the law. The law says one thing, you're operating outside of the law. So anybody who commits sin is actually operating outside of the law. 
How do we know that? Because sin is the transgression of the law. So there's no such thing as sin if there is no law. I'm saying that because the notion or the argument or the premise that we can do whatever we like today, and let's just take the example of eating, consuming unclean meats, that we can consume unclean meat because the law is done away. If the law is done away, then there's no sin. And if sin is defined by the law, then before the law was given to Moses, there was no, it would be impossible to sin before Moses. And yet we know Adam sinned. We, we, know that there was, we know that God destroyed the whole earth because man was knee-deep in sin. Well, I shouldn't say knee-deep. He was completely consumed with sin. So obviously the law must have predated Moses because the law defines sin. So there must be law before Moses. Let's go to the beginning. Let's go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 26. The Lord is speaking to Father Abraham. And remember, just for context's sake, with Abraham, after the flood, Nimrod became the power of the earth. Everybody worshipped him. They were building a tower, a tower in his honor. That they, they, they were burning thoroughly the brick because they wanted to make sure that it would last forever. So they wanted to establish Nimrod's name in the earth forever. And they were taking great care with these bricks that they would use to build the tower. God looked at it and was concerned. And they, they thought that nothing could stop them. And what God did was confuse the language. And then they had to separate. And they took this ideology of the worship of Nimrod with them. And that's the beginning of civilization. So every single civilization begins with the worship of Nimrod and his mother wife, Semiramis. And you can see it in every culture. In that context, where, where the whole world has submitted to the devil, and the whole wor- world is worshipping idols, it's, it's steeped in the idolatry of Nimrod's religion and the worship of the sun. In that context, one man impressed God. And that was Abraham. And God said to this one man, I'm going to make you a great nation. So the nation that comes out of Abraham is completely separate and apart from every other civilization. There is a common thread in all these civilizations, but not in Israel. Israel gets its laws and its code of conduct directly from God. No exception. This is the only nation. This is the only exception to the world at this time. Okay? So he says this, Genesis 26, verse 4. And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto your seed all these countries. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So right now, all the nations of the earth are cursed. They are cursed with the curse of idolatry, the darkness of evil. They are, they are deceived by the devil. But the scripture says 
all these nations, these very same nations, will be blessed because of this nation that God is setting up in Abraham. Why why is he doing this in Abraham? Verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice, and he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. There was a relationship here that God had with Abraham. He spoke to Abraham. Abraham heard his voice. He instructed Abraham. And unlike Adam and Eve, Abraham actually did what God told him to do. He learned the law of God, and he did it. And he operated within that, the confines of the law so that he could become holy. And you can only have a relationship with God if you are holy. Abraham was holy. Because he obeyed his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his law. The word charge, the Hebrew word mishmereth, is the act, the post, the preservation of duty. So he kept his duty. The, 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 the position that God put him in, the office he put him in, he kept that. Commandments is the word mitzvah. And it's a command. Statutes, the Hebrew word chukah, or kuka, sorry, kuka. And it basically means uh, the, the same. It's a statute. It's uh, an ordinance. And law is Torah. So he was given multiple instructions, the body of which comprise God's law, and he obeyed it all. Compare this to the instructions given to Israel in Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11. And right in verse 1, Deuteronomy 11, uh, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel before they go into the promised land. And he says, therefore, after these various instructions that he's given them, therefore you shall love the Lord your God. Notice this, and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. It's practically the very same language that that, that was given to Abraham. So... Here, charge is mismereth, the same thing that, was, that Abraham kept. Statutes is kuka, same thing that Abraham kept. And commandments are mitzvah, same thing that Abraham kept. The only change here is he does not say Torah here. He says instead judgments, which is mishpat, which is basically a verdict. But you can see here the language is practically the same, that there are, there are detailed instructions that God has given to Israel that he expects them to obey. Abraham obeyed God's voice, and he was given detailed instructions, and he obeyed them. So very clearly, Abraham had law. The, the nations all around him were lawless, unholy, unclean, but Abraham was holy. Abraham obeyed the law. Let's go back now before Abraham, to Noah. Genesis 6. So we know that Abraham obeyed the law. Abraham was given law. So before Moses, before the Mosaic Covenant, we know that Abraham had these laws, and he was obedient to them. He complied 
and conform to them. What about Noah? Genesis 6, so we know we're going to come to Genesis 9. But in Genesis 9, what we read was Noah basically got a free pass. You know, Noah, you can go to the oyster pork barbecue. It's all good. Let's see if that's what the scripture says. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 7. And the Lord said, this is God speaking, brethren, looking at the earth. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. He made man in God's image. God was to reflect, man was to reflect God's glory. And here is God speaking. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For it repents me that I have made them. In other words, I'm sick. What I'm seeing makes me ill. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah was different. The same way that Abraham was different in the midst of all this corruption, Noah was different. Verse 9 says, these are the generations of Noah. And notice this in verse 9. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. God is holy. You can't walk with God. I can't walk with God if I'm unholy. Noah was holy. That means that Noah heard God's voice. And he obeyed God. God would explain to him, here's how to have a relationship with me. Here's how to be holy. Here's how to conduct yourself in righteousness. And Noah obeyed. And that's why when God is sick, just he's had, his patience is expired. And God says, I'm going to destroy the whole earth. This man stands out. It's not because he was doing whatever he liked and God just says, oh, I'll destroy everybody, but okay, I'll spare you. No, this was an obedient man. He knew God's laws. He was obeying them. And that's why he was spared with his family. Drop down to verse 21. And take you unto, and take you, unto you of all food that is eaten. Notice this. Notice the, notice the phrasing in this instruction. Take unto you of all food that is eaten. This is a holy man. There's sort of an understanding. There are beasts on the earth, some of which are food, and some of which are not food. There is never any passage in the scripture. I would challenge anybody to show me a passage in the scripture where unclean meat is referred to as food by God. It's never done. So he says here, of all, the, of all the food that's actually eaten, you shall gather it to you, and it shall be food for you and for them. So there's a certain kind of meat that is food, and there's meat that's not food for, for human consumption. Of the meats that are food for human consumption, go and gather that to yourself. So there's an understanding between Noah and God. Verse 22, thus did Noah. Noah obeys God. This is what he did went out and found clean meat for food. He did according to all that God commanded him. Now, Genesis is giving us the highlights, but there's an actual relationship here between this man and God. And everything that God commands him, he does. Everything. So did he. Let's go to Genesis 7, 
Genesis 7 and verse 1. And the Lord said to Noah, come you and all of your house. I'm about to destroy the whole planet. But you come with your household. Why? Come into the ark. Why? For you have I seen righteous before me. Noah was obedient. I've seen you actually following my laws. So I'm going to destroy the whole earth, but I've seen you as an obedient man. So you come with your household into the ark. For I have seen you righteous before me in this generation. Notice verse 2. Of every clean beast you shall take to you by sevens, male and female, and of the beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. So you're going into the ark. I'm going to destroy everything, man and beast. You are a righteous man. I'm going to spare you. Bring your family. Then in the earth, bring seven pairs of clean beasts and bring two pairs of unclean beasts. Now, just logically, does it make sense that Noah should care if after the flood, when he's back on earth, sorry, that God, well, let's say that Noah should care, but that God would instruct him to care, that after the flood, he's going to say to Noah, forget what I said about clean and unclean meat. Just, it doesn't matter. Why wouldn't he from here say, just gather the animals and get them in the ark, let's go, I'm going to flood the earth, and then afterwards, when they're gone, just go ahead and eat whatever you want. So logically, God is saying, before you get on the ark, have this separation and make sure you get seven pairs of clean beasts, two pairs of unclean. And he's very clear about what's food and what's not. So now we come with this context to chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 3 says, Every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, even as the green herb has I, have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, you shall not eat. So this scripture, we have to ask ourselves, does it make sense? Does it make sense that God is so careful about righteousness, about clean and unclean meat, even right up to going on the ark and on the ark to have this separation between clean and unclean. Noah is very, very clear. And then there's this shorthand between them that we saw in verse... uh, 21 of chapter 6, where he says... Take you unto you all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to you, and it shall be food for you. So, so I'm telling you, this, this is what will be food for you. I think the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Do we serve a God of abrogation? Because Muslims do. Allah, 64% of the Quran is either a scripture that abrogates a previous scripture Or a scripture that's been abrogated. What kind of revelation is this? Where we have a God that can't make up his mind. One minute he says do this. 
And then the next, the next day he has another revelation that says, I know I told you to do this, but now I'm telling you to do this. Is that the, is that the God we serve? A God of abrogation? Where he's telling Noah, look, I'm going to destroy the whole planet because they're unrighteous. But you're righteous. Now that I've destroyed everybody, go ahead and eat whatever you want. I know I said it was sin before, and I've destroyed everybody because of that, but you go ahead and eat whatever you want. Does this logically make sense? Is God inconsistent? Or does God know, you know, if you, I'm actually going to speak about this next week, but if you study the Quran and put it in context, what you find out is God knows as much as an Arabian trader in the 7th century. And God is trying to figure things out as he goes. That's what you see. This God, Yahweh, he's not trying to figure things out as he goes. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he has a plan. The lamb was slain from the foundation of the earth. He has a plan. He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't have to abrogate his word. The Quran, and I'll show this next week, teaches you, if you're a follower of the Quran, teaches you to be a liar. You should learn how to lie. That's what Allah says. Yahweh says, all liars will be consumed in the lake of fire. There is no lying under Yahweh. Yahweh says that his word is faithful. That's why Abraham is so one wonderful example to us. Because God made a covenant with him and he believed God. He said, this God, if he says something, I believe it. It can't be that God tells mankind one thing, then destroys them for disobeying it, and then when Noah comes through, changes his mind. It doesn't make sense. So here we see, let's go back in fact to chapter 8 of, of Genesis 8. Genesis 8. And, and, and yeah, Genesis 8, verse 20 says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord. So he has come through the flood. He's now on dry land after 40 days. And he's building an altar. He built an altar to thank God and took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah knew how to be holy. Noah knew how to have a relationship with God. There is no way coming off the flood having destroyed all mankind. Imagine that. You and your family are the only survivors. All those people you knew, you warned them for years, decades, they're all gone. Only you left. You're now on dry land and you're thanking God. He is very careful to only bring clean beasts in his offering. So in verse 3 of chapter 9, when God says, every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, that word, the Hebrew word, akla, means food, something that you can consume. I, I, again, I'm just going to offer that. Noah understands. Of all the things that can be eaten, you can have anything. There's no way that Noah is now thinking, oh, I can eat shrimp and whatever, any unclean meat. He's careful. He's a righteous man. And he knows that everybody, in fact, if anything, coming through this experience, he's going to be more careful than he was before the flood. Okay. 
Let's now keep this in mind as we come to Israel. And again, if God is telling Noah, go ahead and eat whatever you want, then we've got this God of abrogation where it's not okay to eat unclean meat. Then for Noah, it is okay to eat unclean meat. Then for Abraham, it's not okay to eat unclean meat. Then for Moses and Israel, it's not okay to eat unclean meat. Then for Christians, it is okay for, to eat unclean meat. And then when he returns, it's not okay to eat unclean meat. Is this God? Is God that inconsistent? Let's look at this. Exodus 40. What we see in Exodus 40 is the beginning of a national relationship with God. Prior to Israel, the relationship with God was individual. You you see in Genesis, up to Genesis 12, with Abraham, different men who walked with God. With Abraham, there's this promise that I will make you a great nation. And God covenants to say, I will never break this word. That covenant passes down to Isaac. It then goes to Jacob or Israel. And Israel becomes this nation that God covenanted with Abraham. And so now we see a nation having a relationship with God. So where we saw an individual man walk with God and an individual man learn how to be holy, now what we're going to see in Exodus or in the, in the uh, Pentateuch, is how a nation walks with God. How a nation becomes holy before God. So Exodus 40, they have finished building the tabernacle, the tent, the temporary dwelling that God will live in. So God is going to live with them. And that's what we see here, Exodus 40 and verse 34. They finished building the the tabernacle. Then a cloud, verse 34, covered the tent of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God has moved in with Israel. God lives with Israel. All the nations are worshiping Nimrod. And Yahweh lives with Israel. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. So they followed the glory of the Lord. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. Yahweh lives with Israel. When this nation battles the surrounding nations, it conquers them. These nations that worship Nimrod, they learn to fear Israel. If they hear Israel is coming, they're terrified because God lives with Israel. Verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so ends the book of Exodus. The next book is Leviticus. Now, for us, in this Western world, we see this as a book with chapters, and then another book with chapters, and they have nothing to do with each other. For the Hebrews, it's a scroll. And, and there's no artificial separation. These, this artificial separation helps us. I can say to you, turn to Exodus chapter 40. 
Well, they didn't have Exodus chapter 40. That's a, that's a modern invention. They had a scroll. And so let's just keep reading the scroll. God moves in to live with this nation. And the very next thing that happens is the book of Leviticus. They get instructions on how to be a holy nation, how to be a holy people, how as a nation they can walk with God. Because prior to this, it was individuals that walked with God. Now the whole nation is going to walk with God. And so the very first instruction, right after God moves in, Leviticus 1, verse 1, And the Lord called unto Moses and spoke unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. God moves in and he speaks to the nation. Here's how the nation can live with me. How can a nation live with a holy God? It has to be holy. Verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. So now he goes into the whole offering. He explains to the priests how they're to handle the offering. He explains to the people how they're to handle the offering. And the whole book of Leviticus is about how the Levitical priesthood and the people need to conduct themselves in order to have a relationship with the holy God as a holy nation. With that as context, let's go now to chapter 11. Chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 1. So we're getting all these instructions on how to be a holy nation. Now we come to the food laws. Leviticus 11 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and to Aaron, saying unto them, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which you shall eat among all the beasts that are on earth. So is God confused going back and forth? Or has it always has the Creator always been clear? I have created man in my image. I have created beasts on the earth, some of which are for human consumption. Others of which are part of the ecology of the earth. They're the garbage cleaners. They're the bottom feeders. They keep the ecology healthy. They are not for a being that is made in my image, that I expect to have a relationship with. I am the creator. I know what I put in each of these beings. I'm not confused. So now this nation is going to have a relationship with me. Moses, speak to the nation. Let them understand as a nation how to walk with me, how to be holy. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the beasts which you shall eat among the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parts the hoof, and is cloven hoof-footed, and chews the cud among the beasts, that shall you eat. Nevertheless, these shall you not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the hoof. As the camel, because he chews the cud, but divides not the hoof. He is unclean to you. And the coney, because he chews the cud, but divides not the hoof, he is unclean to you. And the hare, because he chews the cud, but divides not the hoof, he is unclean to you. I'm the creator. I know what I've done. And I, I'm giving you this pattern so you understand. And the swine, the pig, though he divides the hoof and be cloven-footed, yet he chews not the cud, he is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall you not eat, and their carcass shall you not touch. They are unclean to you. All around you, the Nimrod worshippers, the idolaters, they eat whatever they want. 
you're a holy nation. Don't touch these things. Don't eat them. Dropping down to verse 11. They shall be even an abomination unto you. They are an abomination unto you. They are an abomination. Do you get it? Do you get it? You're to be a holy nation. In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You shall be a holy nation. These meats shall be an abomination unto you. I am the creator. I know what I'm doing. I'm not confused. This is not just so, you know, some willy-nilly, you know, do this today, but don't do it tomorrow. No. Everybody that walks with me must be holy. And you are a nation that is going to walk with me and bless the whole earth. You must be holy. And these are an abomination unto you. You shall not eat of their flesh, but you shall have their carcasses in abomination. The word meaning an idolatrous object. It's what the people who worship Nimrod eat. It has to do with satanic worship. And you are to be holy. I'm not confused. No one who walks with me engages in abomination. You are to be holy. Verse 12. Whatsoever has no fins nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination unto you. And these are they which you shall have in abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle and the ossifrage and the osprey. Verse 20. All fowls that creep, going upon all four, shall be an abomination unto you. Verse 23. But all other flying, creeping things which have four feet shall be an abomination unto you. There is one nation that will not worship idols. All the rest are steeped in idolatry. This nation must not engage in idolatry. It's to be, these are to be an abomination. It's a form of idolatry. Verse 24. And for these you shall be unclean. Whosoever even touches the carcass of them shall be unclean. This is about holiness. This is about how to have a relationship with, with God. They shall be unclean until the even. And whosoever bears anything of the carcass of them shall wash his clothes. God has moved in. God lives in the camp of Israel. You must be holy. So if you even touch one of these unclean beasts, then you have to wash and you have to wait until the new day before you can be declared clean to approach God. Verse 26. The carcass of every beast which divides the hoof and is not cloven-footed or chews the cud are unclean unto you. Every one that touches them shall be unclean. Drop down to verse 32. And, and notice this language now as we come into this part of the passage. And I'll, I'll point it out as we get there. Verse 32. And upon whatsoever any of them, when they are dead, doth fall, it shall be unclean. Whether it be any vessel of wood or raiment or skin or sack, whatsoever vessel it be, wherein any work is done, it must be put into water. Uh, uh, God lives with Israel. If any of these unclean beasts even touch something, that thing's going to be unclean. And it shall be unclean until even, so it shall be cleansed. Do, do you get the sense that they should have nothing to do with these beasts with respect to their relationship with God? And every earthen vessel whereinto any of them falls, 
whatsoever is it is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it don't even bother now notice this language in verse 34 which is the code between god and his people it's always there's sort of an assumption if i'm speaking to god's people i i don't have to say to you uh don't worship on sun you know if i say to you let's let's worship on um if i say to you uh, pick a day when we can get together and have services i don't have to say to you pick a sabbath day when we can get together and i i hope that's understood between us so pick a day when we can have services and we'll discuss our our strategy as a as a congregation if you come back to me and say oh let's have services on a wednesday i'm going to do a double take because I'm assuming I'm talking to the people of God. Well, there's a shorthand between God and his people. And you see it here in verse 34, the same shorthand he used with, with Noah. Of all meat which may be eaten. So we're talking about human food. We're not just talking about beast, period. We're talking about human food. Of all meat which may be eaten, that on which such water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that may be drunk in every such vessel shall be unclean. So this is really, really serious. This, is, this has to do with the true worship of God. Verse 43. You shall not make yourselves abominable. This is how God feels about this. Is this something that God's going to change his mind on? You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps. Neither shall you make yourselves unclean with them, that you should be defiled thereby. This is the anger that God has over this. He's going to destroy the whole earth and then tell Noah, I changed my mind. Go ahead. It's not abomination anymore. For I am the Lord your God. Because I'm the Lord your God, verse 44, you shall therefore sanctify yourselves and you shall be holy. Because I am holy. You can't be unclean and have a relationship with me. I am holy. Therefore, you shall be holy. And I'm giving you the instructions as to how to be holy. Why? So that you can bless all, the, all these other nations that are in darkness. I've made a promise to Abraham. I'm carrying it out in you. Neither shall you, verse 44, defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. For I am the Lord that brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the beasts and of the fowl, and of every living creature that moves in the waters, and of every creature that creeps upon the earth, to make a difference. This is, this is the God of Israel. He makes a difference between the unclean and the clean. And, and whenever you're dealing with the God of Israel, there's a difference. There's a separation. He's the one that decides what is holy. We don't decide what's holy. He decides what's holy. There's a difference between holy people and profane people. There's a difference between holy time and, and profane time. There's a difference between uh, holy food and profane food. We are not to be idolaters, and it's very clear, to make a difference between the unclean and the clean. God is not an anything goes God. And between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. Now, Again, is God a God of abrogation? Is he trying to figure this out as he goes along? Or is he very clear from the beginning? So let's now 
fast forward. So there's this period that we're in now, the church age, which the argument is, since Jesus Christ, and by the way, when I say God, I hope we understand, this is Jesus Christ. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord who's speaking to Israel. He's the one that has the relationship with Israel. He says, no man has seen the Father. I came to reveal the Father. So, so Israel didn't know the Father. They knew Christ. Now, we're in this church age where the argument is, Christ came, he died on the cross, and, and he finished the work on the cross. So now we're free to do whatever we want, and we're free to eat whatever we want. Okay. So we're saying that we have a God of abrogation. God goes back and forth. So now we can eat whatever we want. Hold that thought. We can eat whatever we want. And look at Isaiah 66. Let's fast forward. We're coming to the end of the church age. And brethren, it's going to be a difficult end. It's going to be a difficult end, but it's okay. Because on the other side of the difficulty is great glory. Great glory. So we just have to endure to the end. And then we're going to be rewarded with great glory. But let's fast forward to the end as Christ returns. Isaiah 66. And drop down to verse 16. For by fire... Remember, God was so angry with the world, he flooded the world. But he promised Noah, I will never send another flood. He didn't say, I won't destroy the world again. This time it's not going to be water, it's going to be fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh. So all flesh is in rebellion. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. This is serious. This is a serious time. God himself is going to slay many. We're back in the state, as in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. We're back in this corrupt state. The slain of the Lord shall be many. They that sanctify themselves, so these are now the religious folk, they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the garden, behind one tree in the mist, eating swine's flesh, Uh Uh-oh, Christ is coming. There's some religious folk that think they can eat pig and have oyster and worship God. And he's saying the, the slain of the Lord shall be many. And they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination. They're back into the idolatry that God does not want his people engaged in. You think God is a joke? We can do whatever we want? Oh, no. God is real. God has laws. God is holy. He teaches us how to be holy. And here these people think they can define holiness. Worship God and consume the abomination. Eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, says the Lord. Jesus Christ will destroy them all that do this. We should fear. We should hear and fear. We are not above the word of God. I don't want to be in this category. I know that Noah was in a category of one. And God says when he returns, as it was in the days of Noah, 
so shall it be in the coming of, uh, coming of man, the Son of Man. I, I want to be in that category of one. I know this time it's a church. There's going to be one church, the body of Christ, that is different and separate. Just as Israel should have been different and separate in a world of idolatry. Eating unclean meats is the abomination. It's idolatry. And Jesus Christ is not flippant. He doesn't go back and forth. He's consistent. And he wants a holy people. And we should not defile ourselves with this. So he says here, you want to eat pig? You want to eat oyster? You want to eat mice? Oh yeah? You'll be consumed altogether, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. The end of Nimrod worship, will, 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 it'll come to an end. And they will see who is really God. And they're going to come and try and force their false religion on us. And tell us that if we don't accept their false religion, they'll kill us. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. We will never worship false gods. We were, Christ is so holy and so glorious. We, we pledge our allegiance to Christ and to these scriptures. So we see from the very beginning, brethren, to the end, there is law. So let's now go back. Now that we have this context, let's now go back to these scriptures that are used to argue the case that we can eat the abomination, even though it's very clear that God wants us to have no such thing. God wants us to be holy because he is holy. So he, and originally he was doing it with the nation of Israel. They failed. Now he's doing it with the church, the spiritual nation of Israel. Old covenant is old because there's a new covenant with Israel. But that new covenant is now with Israel as a church. And Gentiles can come into this new covenant because it's a spiritual covenant. But we are to be Israel, the physical nation of Israel, was to be the example to all the Nimrod nations. God said to Abraham, promised him, that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And they were to be a model. And they were for a time under King Solomon. People traveled from all around to understand who is this God that you worship. But they failed. Now we are this nation, this spiritual nation, in a sea of idolatry that is to bless the whole world. And again, if we understand the holy days, we understand the plan of God. He's not figuring this out as he goes. So we are to be this holy nation. We can't be this holy nation and be consuming the abomination, which is idolatry. So let's go back through these scriptures and understand what they mean. First, Matthew 15, the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew 15, we were in verses 10 and 11. Let's just see, what is he talking about? Verse 10, he says, Hear and understand. Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, this is what defiles the man. So again, this is Christ. He's a Jew. He is speaking to the Pharisees, who are Jews, and the scribes. He doesn't have to say, when when they say, you know, what goes into your mouth, there is no way that they're thinking, oh, that means the mouse and the oyster and the swine. They obviously know that he's talking about human food. But the issue is not unclean meat. The issue we see in verse 1, 
Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. So they were eating bread. They weren't eating mice. They were eating bread. And they, weren't, they didn't wash their hands. But he answered and said, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? So they were concerned about their traditions. They had a tradition that you had to wash hands before you eat bread. The disciples didn't do that. His answer is, you're transgressing the commandments of God. Then he explains to them, it's not because there's some dust on your fingers and you eat the bread and the dust that's on your fingers, you consume it. That's not, that's not what's going to defile you. It's what comes out of your mouth where you're putting yourself a, a ahead of God. You're teaching people to disobey God. That's, what's, that's what defiles a man. So it's a Jewish audience and a well-educated audience in the law. And there's this shorthand of that which can be eaten. It's not that which goes into the mouth that defiles the man. It's what comes out of the mouth. Let's go now to Acts 10. <clears throat> Here we saw Peter having this vision of unclean beasts. But notice... I think we all know that the vision is about the fact that the Gentiles are to come into the covenant. And you can't call them unclean. God has made them clean so they can come into the covenant. But who is coming into the covenant? Who's coming into the covenant? Look at verse 1 of Acts 10. There was a certain man. It was a particular man. It wasn't anybody. There was a particular man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He was a centurion of the band called the Italian band. So this is the Roman army, and there are different bands. And he's actually a man of authority, over 100 soldiers, a centurion, of the Italian band. So very clearly, this is a Gentile. He's Italian. It's a particular man. It's not anybody. What's so peculiar about this man? Is it that he's Italian? Well, that's part of it. But the real peculiarity of this man is in verse 2. Even though he was a Gentile, he was a devout man and one that feared God. So the Jews, living in the Roman Empire, had a reputation. And most of the Romans despised them. But there were others in the empire that saw their conduct, saw how moral they were, and attached themselves to the Jews. They could never become Jews, but they would worship with them, and they were called God-fearers. Cornelius was a God-fearer. That means that Cornelius was not eating the abomination. Cornelius was not eating swine. Cornelius was not breaking the Sabbath. It says here, he was a devout man. And he feared God. Not just him, his whole house. So, so these were, 
as close to Jewish as you could get and not be in the, and not have the lineage, not have the blood. But he was adopted the, the Jewish customs. He gave much alms to the people. He really supported the Jews. He was, where, your, where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. His heart was really here. And he prayed to God always. So this is really, you could say, he's a, he's a Jewish man, except that he's not Jewish. He's really, really putting, he really fears God. And he's really putting himself out there. So then we get the vision that Peter has that tells him to kill and eat. And he says, notice this in verse 14. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I have never done this my whole life. Never. This is the same man that was there when Peter said, it's not that which goes into your mouth that defiles a man, but that which comes out. So if he heard that instruction from that point in front of Christ, he should have started to eat the abomination. But he says, I have never. This is years after Christ has been crucified. And he's saying, I've never, ever eaten anything that's common or unclean. Verse 16. Well, sorry, verse 15. The voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has clean, cleansed, you shall not call common. This was done three times. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now notice verse 17. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean. If anything, this should say, and then it occurred to Peter that Jesus said to him, it's not that which goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. He said, oh yeah, the Lord told me this. He do- this happened three times. It's not like when the cock crew three times and Peter repented. Peter knew immediately he was in the wrong. This happened three times and Peter is totally confused because he knows what it cannot mean. This cannot possibly mean that I can now eat the abomination and make myself unclean. It cannot mean that. So what can it mean? He's trying to figure it out. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And so, verse 19, while Peter thought on the vision, he's still trying to figure it out. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men seek you. Arise, therefore, and get you down and go with them. Doubt nothing, for I have sent them. You're going to get the answer. He's still trying to figure. He knows what it cannot possibly mean. It's not that. So what does it mean? I have no idea. Trying to figure it out. Now the Holy Spirit says, get down and don't doubt anything. You're going to get the answer. Verse 28. So he has the answer here. Verse 28. And he said unto them, you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or to come unto one of another nation. But God has shown me, this is what the vision means, that I should not call any man common. Or unclean. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears him, as Cornelius did, feared him, obeys him, 
and works righteousness. Works righteousness. Doesn't do unrighteousness. Doesn't do whatever he pleases. He works righteousness. He's accepted with him. Okay. Let's go now go to the passage in 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. First uh, Timothy four and verse one. Now the Spirit speaks expressly. There's no confusion here. The, the Spirit is expressing itself very clearly. That in the latter times, our time, some shall depart from the faith. And again, I, I cry when I see that scripture. I really wish that that scripture wasn't in the text. I wish it said that. And in the latter times, the church shall be faithful to the end doesn't say that. It says we're going to have defectors. So we have to ground ourselves, brethren. We don't know what's coming. My mom would say to me, you see, uh, you see today, you don't see tomorrow. We don't see tomorrow. The, the, the scoffers say all things will continue the way they've always been. No, they won't. Stuff is coming in our future that we can't even begin to comprehend. A time of trouble so great. And many will depart from the faith. Or some will depart from the faith. The love of many will wax cold. Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. There are spirits that are trying to seduce us into Nimrod worship. And doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And here it is, verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So again, given everything that we've covered, can this possibly mean that God is saying you have a free pass Eat whatever you like. It's all good. So clearly, we would say that to abstain from meats is dealing with human food. Human food. And you're going to see that as we go to another passage here. Human food, which God has created. So food, meat which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So, so that's, that's the category of meats that we're talking about. Human food. Then of, within that category... These creatures are good, nothing to be refused, is to be received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Let's see this again in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10 and verse 25. Whatsoever is sold in the meat markets, that eat. Anything, whatever sold in the meat markets, that eat. Asking no question for conscience sake. So don't ask anything, just eat it. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. For if any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, 
for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The issue here in the Corinthian church was not about eating mice and monkeys and dogs and cats. It was about the meat that was being sacrificed to idols. And there was an issue in the church that if this meat has been sacrificed to idols, we shouldn't be eating it. It, it's, It's defiled. And Paul is saying, it's not an issue. The idols are nothing. But if somebody tells you, hey, look, I've sacrificed this animal to this idol, then don't eat it. Because he's looking at you as a Christian and saying, you know now that this has been sacrificed to idols. Then why are you eating it? So, so the issue here is not abomin- abominable beasts versus clean beasts. It's clean beasts that have been sacrificed but offered to idols. And should, is it okay to eat that? Look at Romans 14. Of verse 1, him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. So we're told that this means that, you know, one thinks he can eat shrimp and monkeys, and the other just thinks that I can't, I can't do that. That's not what this is saying. Again, Paul is actually in Corinth when he's writing to the Romans. And he's just dealt with the issue of idolatry or eating meat sacrificed to idols in Corinth. And now he's writing to the Romans. Similar issue. The Life Application Bible says this. The ancient system of sacrifice that was at the center of the religious, social, and domestic life of the Roman world. After a sacrifice was presented to a god in a pagan temple, only part of it was burned. The remainder was often sent to the market to be sold. Thus a Christian might easily, even unknowingly, buy such meat in the marketplace or eat it at the home of a friend. Should a a Christian question the source of his meat? Some thought that there was nothing wrong with eating meat that had been offered to idols because idols were worthless and phony. Others carefully checked the source of their meat and gave up meat altogether in order to avoid a guilty conscience. So when it says here in verse 2, one believes that he may eat all things, this is the same issue that the Corinthians were having. So they didn't really care whether or not it was sacrificed to idols. Another, who is being very, very careful, is saying, if I can't tell where the meat comes from, I'll be a vegetarian. I won't eat any meat at all. That's the issue here in Romans 14. Verse 3. Let not him that eats the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, despise him that chooses not to touch meat at all. And let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Who are you that judges another man's servant? He's a Christian. He's a servant of Christ. He's not your servant. To his own master he stands or falls. Yes, he shall be held up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And again, the subject is not holy days today, but uh, the Christian world will use this passage to say, see, you don't need to keep the Sabbath. One, you esteem Sabbath, we esteem Wednesday, it doesn't matter. 
This is not talking about that. This is talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And they had their pagan days, and certain days, certain idols, certain um, sacrifices were made, and they were esteeming these days, and they had fast days. And, and Paul is saying, you know, they have these different days that they esteem. It, it really, it, you know, some people are saying, we have to fast on this day. No, you don't. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. So that's your own business. You want to go ahead and fast and not eat meat that day? That's up to you. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he that fasts, to the Lord he fasts and gives thanks. The expositor's Bible commentary says that the close contextual association with eating suggests that Paul has in mind a special day set apart for observance as a time for feasting or as a time for fasting. Verse 7. For none of us lives unto himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live to the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Now, look at... Verse 14, I know and I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So what is this saying? So is there nothing unclean of itself? It's just the fact it's whether or not we think it's unclean. Well, this word unclean is the word coinous and it means common. So it doesn't mean unclean as in abominable. It just means common. Okay? So it's not for sacred service. Now, Acts 10, hold your place here and look at Acts 10, verse 14. We're, going to, we're, going to, we're coming back to Romans 14. Acts 10 and verse 14, remember where Peter says this. So, kill and eat, go ahead and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So, there's a difference. There's, there's common and there's unclean. And Peter's saying, I've never eaten either. The word common here is koinos, meaning ceremonial uh, uh, ceremonial profa- ceremonially profane. It, it's not for ceremony. It's common. It's unholy. And unclean, this word is akathartos. Akathartos. And it means abomination. Impure. Morally lewd. Demonic. Foul. So I've never eaten anything that's common. And I've never eaten anything that's demonic, abominable. So this word, akathartos, is abominable. Let's go back to Romans 14. Where we see very clearly in Romans 14, the subject is not the abomination. It's not the demonic beasts that are idolatry. It's what's common. 
It's food that's common. Coyness. There is nothing common of itself, but unto him that esteems anything to be common, to him it's common. Coyness. But if your brother be grieved with your meat, so you're, you're going ahead and you're eating this meat that's been sacrificed to idols, now walk you not charitably? Do not destroy him with your meat for whom Christ died. It's perfectly okay for you to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. As I told the Corinthians, I'm here in Corinth. I've just instructed the Corinthians about this. And now I'm writing to you about the same thing. And I'm telling you the same thing as them. If you love your brother, put your brother's health and welfare, spiritual health and welfare, above your belly. Have some priorities. Your stomach doesn't have to come first. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith we may edify one another. It's the same instruction that he gave to the Corinthians. And he's writing from Corinth to the Romans saying the exact same thing. For meat, verse 20, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for that man to whom uh, that man who eats with offense. Okay, let's conclude, brethren, in Luke. God is consistent, brethren. God is consistent. He is very, very clear that unclean meats are abominable. What abominable means means idolatrous. It's a form of idolatry when you eat these things. And he is the creator. And we see through all the scriptures, he never authorizes the consumption of unclean meat. And in fact, we see in Isaiah 66, he's going to destroy people in the future who claim to be holy and yet are eating these abominable meats. So, I hope... That should you ever get an invitation that has been going out since 1871 to consume oyster and pork at the Carversville Christian Church, that you will know that this behavior, this conduct is abominable to Christ. It is not authorized by the scriptures. I hope instead that you'll accept this invitation. Found in Luke 22. Here's the dinner invitation that we want to be a part of. Here's the dinner invitation that we will do anything to be a part of. Here's the dinner invitation that we're not going to say to God, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I can't make it. We're going to do everything we can to be at this dinner. Luke 22, verse 17, Christ is taking the Passover with his disciples. He's having this Passover meal with his disciples and he took the cup and gave thanks and said take this and divide it among yourselves verse 18 for I say unto you I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come there will be another Passover ceremony when Christ returns and I can guarantee you there'll be no oyster and there'll be no pork at that table This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation 
of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.